And as I continue to do, I will encourage you to think about why we sing the hymns we sing, why we say the scripture we say, because it's all focused in on the word of God. Please pray with me. Father God, I pray that you will empower me to speak your words, that you will help me to parse your word well, that you'll give me the right amount of of power to speak these words, Lord, and the courage to speak them, because they're your words. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book on church discipline, Jonathan Lehman writes, suppose an American football player joins some friends for a game of soccer. Then mid-game, he reached down and picked up the soccer ball and began to run with it. The referee would obviously blow his whistle and call a foul. At this point, the American player might look back at the referee with a bit of bewilderment on his face. Why the foul? He was simply doing what he always does. Grab the ball and run with it. In response, one could explain to the American football player that soccer players cannot touch the ball with their hands. Or, one could take a little bit more time to explain how the game of soccer actually works. Soccer is by definition a game for the feet, not the hands. The very thing that makes soccer fascinating to watch is the ability that skillful players to have to exert control over the ball without ever touching it with their hands. You see, the American football player didn't just break a rule. He broke the rule that defines the game of soccer. That's a little bit of what's going on in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Paul isn't just blowing a whistle and calling a foul because someone has sinned. He's taking time to explain that serious, outward, unrepentant sin that exists in the church of Jesus Christ is not just breaking a rule. It's corrupting the very foundation of the church itself. Look with me at chapter 5. God's word says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of Jesus, I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. 
Don't you know that the little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexual immorality, sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers, the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is, business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Robert Murray McShane, the wonderful Scottish pastor, when he was speaking to his own congregation, about church discipline said this. He said, When I first entered upon the work of the ministry among you, I was exceedingly ignorant of the vast importance of church discipline. I thought that my great and almost only work was to pray and to preach. I saw your souls to be so precious in the time so short that I devoted all my time, all my care, all my strength to labor in word and doctrine. When cases of church discipline were brought before me and the elders, I regarded them with something of an abhorrence. It was a duty I shrank from, he writes. But it pleased God, who teaches his servants in another way than man teaches, to bless some of the cases of discipline to the manifest and undeniable conversion of their souls And from that hour, a new light broke upon my mind. And I saw that if preaching is an ordinance of Christ, so is church discipline. The church today does not talk a lot about church discipline. The church today doesn't like the mention of church discipline. We shrink away from it. Various reasons, because of possible abuse in in the past of church discipline, because of the problem with authority, There's authority involved in church discipline because of pastors like McShane himself who shrink away from it. But as McShane came to understand, and Paul is is trying to teach the Corinthians to understand, church discipline is critical to the health of a church of Jesus Christ. Apparently, according to Paul here, there was a man in verse 1 who was, who was sleeping with his father's wife. We've come to understand that maybe as his stepmother, we're not sure. But certainly what Paul is getting at is there was a, an issue of incest within the church of Corinth. A behavior that, that the Corinthians... The, the city itself would shrink back from and abhor. 
and the church wasn't doing anything about it. So Paul takes time to explain three things to the Corinthian church. The first is the proper reaction that a church should have to sin among it. The second is the danger of allowing serious outward unrepentant sin to remain within. And then he talks about several disciplinary actions that the church needs to take. So first, the proper reaction, the proper response. What's the proper heart response that we should have to a person who is entrapped in sin within the church, of a brother or sister in the Lord. Paul talks about it right here in verses 1 and 2. He says, There's actually reported there's a sexual immorality among you, the kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. And here's what he says, Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man? Filled with grief. Underline that. That is the proper response, the gospel response to somebody who is caught in sin. The ESV more properly translates it, ought you not rather mourn? The heart response we should have is one of mourning. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, translation, the message helps us even further. He, He translates it this way. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Shouldn't this bring you to your knees in tears? Dear body of Christ, that's the reaction. That's the heart that we should have towards a brother or sister who is entrapped in sin. It should break your hearts. Because that's what it really is. They're ensnared. They're trapped. They're in the teeth of sin. Listen to how scripture describes sin in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but those who desire to be rich, in other words, covetous and greedy, fall into a temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Sin entangles. Sin ensnares. Just... Think of a beloved pet that you might have or had and you let this beloved pet out to run in the yard and and, and he doesn't come back so you go out searching for him and you see some movement in the woods and you spot your beloved pet and it's trapped in one of those claw traps. Its paw is trapped and he's tugging and he can't get free and he's bleeding and he's in pain And you know that if you leave him there, he'll die. That's the kind of heart that you should have for a brother or sister who is ensnared in sin. 
your heart should break. You should be brought to your knees in tears. That's how Paul describes what our hearts should be like when dealing with a brother or sister who is in serious, outward, unrepentant sin. Your heart should break. One of the problems with how church discipline has been administered many times, not always, but many times, and in years past, is the approach is one of anger. You know what I mean? It's an angry heart. There Now there is a place, a certain place for righteous indignation and for zeal for God's name. I understand that. But we have to be really careful here, people. That we do not act out of anger and resentment and bitterness when we administer church discipline. Our hearts should be broken to see a beloved brother or sister entrapped by sin. Because that's what it really is. They are actually ensnared in the sin. They are captured by it. And they're, they're oblivious. They're oblivious that they are bleeding and that they are slowly dying. And our hearts should break because that's how Christ saw sin, didn't he? That's how Christ saw sin. Read the Gospels. How did he approach people that were entrapped in outward, serious, unrepentant sin? How did he approach the woman caught in adultery when they threw her down? How did he approach the rich young ruler when he turned his back and walked away from him? He says he had compassion. Or how about Mary Magdalene, who is entrapped in fornication, prostitution? Or how about Peter, who was caught in the teeth of fear of man and lied about even knowing him? Christ's heart broke for you and for me, <laughs> who are ensnared in sin over and over again. Can I, can I at least get some head bobbings here? We are. And yet he is faithful and just and he forgives us our sin. His heart is broken when we're ensnared. And that's the heart with which we should approach a brother or sister who is caught in sin with a grieving heart, with a mourning heart, with a heart that is broken. And if you're approaching a brother or sister in any other way, don't approach your brother or sister. Because you're not spiritually prepared for it. But there's a danger with a broken heart. And Paul pinpoints that danger. And the danger of a broken heart is that it leads... To delay. It leads to delay. And Paul wants to make it very clear in this passage that there is real danger if you allow serious, outward, unrepentant sin to remain within the body. Because sin spreads. 
sin spreads. That's what he's saying in verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that little yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the yeast, bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and of truth. Here Paul is explaining a very deep, basic, basic, fundamental truth that we all need to hear. That not only individually, but corporately, I mean, look around, corporately, we are a body that is actually spiritually pure. The body of Christ is pure. And that's because of Christ's sacrifice for us. It's, it's, he's describing it as a yeastless batch of dough. Something that everybody there would understand because they made bread every single day. When you make bread, you put a little yeast in and it, and it miraculously works its way through the whole loaf. You, you, when you bake bread, you don't have one side that's huge and another that's, that's flat. It works its way through the whole dough. How does it do that? That's amazing. And he is saying, listen, guys, if you allow serious outward unrepentant sin to remain in your body, it will spread. It will infect. But we are a pure body because of Christ. And I think it's very interesting that he uses a reference here to the Old Testament, uh, to Exodus, the Passover, Exodus 12. He says he is our Passover lamb. He's referring to Jesus Christ. Because the church, the church is comprised of people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The reason he can say it's pure is because the church is comprised of individuals who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And that makes them pure. And that makes the church, and here's something not popular to say, exclusive. Because the church, Christ's body, is made of people like the Jews in Egypt that believed five things. And here's the gospel. The church is made of a people who realize, like the Jews, that they are enslaved in sin. The Jews knew they were enslaved. They'd been enslaved for 400 years. They knew they were enslaved. And a true believer, a regenerate believer, realizes at some point that they are enslaved in sin and they can't get out, that they are trapped. That's the, that's the beginning of any conversion is that you realize I, I am trapped in sin and I can't do anything about it. And sin's grip is a deadly one. Two, the church is made up of people who realize, like the Jews, that they cannot save themselves. I'm trapped. 
And you know what? I realize I can't save myself. I can't be good enough to get out of this trap. I can't be moral enough to get out of this trap. I can't be nice enough. I'm a really nice person. I can't be nice enough to get out of this trap of sin. Every true believer realizes the same thing. You cannot save yourself. Three, the church is comprised of people like the Jews in Egypt that need to be saved from God's wrath. You know, the only reason they had the Passover is because of the tenth plague, the plague of death that God sent. And Ephesians 2 teaches us that we, we are by nature naturally born objects of God's wrath. And Romans 6.23 teaches us that the wages of sin is death. See, a true believer understands that they need to have peace with God. Romans 5. And that peace is not an emotional peace. It's a war peace. God's wrath is turned aside. Four, the church is made up of people who realize, like the Jews in Egypt, that they need supernatural help. You need supernatural help. The Jews were going to die in slavery. They were in slavery for 400 years. They were going to be in slavery for 400 more years without God's supernatural help. And a true believer realizes this. I need supernatural help. That's what Jesus' life is all about. From his supernatural virgin birth to his supernatural living a sinless life to the supernatural death where he absorbed our sin, my sin. He took my sin penalty and he gave me his righteousness. That's supernatural. To the supernatural resurrection. Who is dead for three days and rises from the dead? And that is seen by over 500 people. Lastly, the church is made up of people who realize, like the Jews in Egypt, that they need to respond in faith. You know, what God said to them is, is take a, a sinless lamb and sacrifice it and take the blood and put it over the door of your home. If you do that, you will live. And those who did that were saved. And the Christian response is exactly the same. If you have faith and you trust in what God's word says, you outwardly trust God's word and respond in faith and believe that Jesus lived the perfect life. And that he did take your penalty and die in your place. And that you did receive his righteousness. And, and God looks at you as a sinless person. And that Jesus rose from the dead three days later to give you eternal life. You will live. As Jesus said when he was at Lazarus's tomb, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, will yet live.
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he looked at the person and said, do you believe this? And that is the question of the day. Do you believe that? Because if you do, even though you die, you will live. You are forgiven a new sinless, yeastless batch of dough. And the church is comprised of such people. And that's why Paul claims in verse 7, he says, that's what you really are. Don't you realize that that's, you're perfect in God's eyes. You've been given Christ's righteousness. And that's why he's so incensed and says, why do you allow this among you? How can you do that? Paul is saying that by allowing a person with serious, unrepentant, outward sin to remain in the body, you're endangering the whole body. You're really endangering the whole body because sin will spread. You know, the Romans were really inventive in how they killed people. We know of crucifixion. You've probably heard of the gladiator games and the wild beasts and dipping people in tar and lighting them on fire. But they had another way of killing a person. They would take, they would take the condemned person and they would tie face to face a dead body. And over the weeks, as that dead body decomposed and you were tied to that dead body, the decomposition would infect your own flesh and you'd eventually die. That's a vivid example of what will happen in the body of Christ if you allow outward, serious, unrepentant sin to remain in the body. It will infect. It is cancerous. And it's terrible to delay. So he says, get rid of it. That's why he's so emphatic about, I've already judged this guy. Get him out of there. He's been in there too long already. And then he tells him exactly how to do it, and he gives him three ways of disciplinary action. Paul gives him three disciplinary actions the church needs to take. The first one is, church, you need to judge the sin. You need to judge. You need to call sin a sin. You need to call it out. In Mark Dever's book, The Deliberate Church, he enumerates five reasons for church discipline. To protect the purity of the church, we just went over that because sin spreads. To warn the church by example, showing each other that we take sin seriously. Saving the person being disciplined, that's verse 5. Hand this person over to Satan so that his, his flesh will be mortified, killed but his soul will be saved. For to present a good witness to non-Christians, you know, this is different than the Elks Club. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a worldly club. This is a different community. And five, to expose sin. 
Because sin loves to hide. Sin loves darkness. You know, we just spent some time in, in adult Sunday school. I said, listen, what, what are some, we were talking about disunity and discord and schism, and I said, what are some potential schismatic issues in our church now? Let's talk about our church. Let's get those things out into the light, because you know what? Sin loves to hide. That's where it, it multiplies. So Paul here says, call it out. Call incest, incest, and judge the sin. And then down in verse 12, he asks the church rhetorically, are you not to judge those inside the church? I mean, the the rhetorical response is, of course we are. But in the culture we live in, in fear and toleration, we have problems with the word judgment, don't we? I mean, whenever we even begin to, to approach that, that threshold, what verse comes up? Lest you be judged. Matthew 7, 1. Can't do it, guys. Can't do it. See, it says it right in Scripture. You can't judge. F.F. F. Bruce, the New Testament scholar, is very helpful when he writes, Judgment is an ambiguous word in Greek and in English. It means, one, to exercise a proper discernment, and two, sitting in judgment and condemnation. And those are really the two uses in Scripture as well. Two types of judgment. One that belongs to God alone. And that's what Matthew 7, 1 is talking about. God alone has the right to judge whether a person goes to hell or goes to heaven. He alone has the right to judge whether a person is saved or not saved. That is the judgment that we are not to take on. But the second kind of judgment, the discerning type of judgment, to exercise proper discernment, is what is meant here. When the Bible says, do not lie, and you see somebody lie, it is not wrong to say that was a lie. When a person is in an incestuous relationship, it is not wrong to say you're sinning. That's the discernment type of judgment that is meant here. And that brings us to the second disciplinary action to expel the person from fellowship. First, we are to judge the sin. Then we are to expel the person from fellowship. Three times in these 13 verses, Paul says, put this man out of fellowship, verse 2. Hand this man over to Satan, meaning outside the church, verse 5. And 13, expel the wicked man from among you. Many take this to understand like the Amish shunning. You take this person, you put them out, and you shun them. You ostracize them. You, you avoid them. You don't make eye contact with them. You pretend as if they don't exist. I can see how people can come to that conclusion. But I don't think when you read the panoply of Scripture that that is sustainable. No, the tie that Paul is directing the church to cut is the tie of communion what we're going to do today. If you look at verse 2, I think it's helpful. He says, take 
take, put this man out of your fellowship. Paul's encouraging to expel the man from the fellowship of the communion table. Now, to many people sitting here, we were going, okay, I can take it or leave it. Okay, not a big deal. And if that attitude is in your heart or mind, I want, I want to encourage you, you don't understand the full import of what we are about to do today. This is the center of our fellowship. This is the orbit around which we need to be centered. I simply do not have time to go into the depths of it, but it is here at the, at the table that we proclaim our deepest need for Christ. It is here at the table that we, re, we are called to remember what continual sinners we are. It is here at the table that we are to recognize the remarkable mercy of Jesus Christ. The, the amazing grace of what he did for us. It is here at the table that we're reminded of the total forgiveness that we are to receive. We're reminded of that. We're clean. We're a sinless batch of, of, of dough. That's how positionally we are towards God. It is here at the table that we are to recall that we have been given that perfect record of Christ. It is here at the table that we proclaim our most intimate bond with each other. Have you ever thought about that? Here is where we declare our most intimate bond with each other. That's why it's a horizontal and not just a vertical ordinance. It is here that there is the most danger if you take this and you haven't given your life to Christ. I say it when I fence the table. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, that if you eat the bread and drink the wine without understanding it, you eat and drink judgment on yourselves. And he goes on later in that, that section to say, and, and that's why some of you have fallen asleep. Some of you have died. There's a real danger of taking this without realizing what you're doing. That's why we take membership here at Southwest Harbor Congregational Church so seriously. We want to make sure as best as we can that people coming to this table are regenerate, spirit-filled believers. Because it's spiritually dangerous if you're, if you're not. That's why we, we talk to you parents about your children taking communion. Make sure they are saved as best we can. That's why we take a regenerate membership so seriously here. That's why we encourage... That's why, that's why a person in serious unrepentant, outward sin should be barred from this table.
you look at verse 11, it says, I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, etc. Your life is not living up to your confession. Your life should be one of repentance. We all sin. And that's why I have said so clearly over this period, a person caught in serious, outward, unrepentant sin is to be barred from the table. And that expelling action should have a gospel reaction. The purpose of church discipline is to bring the person back into fellowship. Is to help the person realize that they are in unrepentant sin. Kim Riddlebarger comments on this verse and he says, Once outside the safety of the church, the man in question is delivered over to the consequences of his own sin and will now dwell in that sphere of life where Satan dominates. A truly regenerate person filled with the Holy Spirit will eventually realize their sin. I want to say that again. When you exercise church discipline and a person is barred from the table, a truly regenerate, Holy Spirit-indwelled person will eventually fall under the conviction of their own sin in return. They will feel that conviction. That's verse 5. They, they will feel the loss of the, of the closeness of the Spirit. They will feel the loss of the closeness of the fellowship, the community closeness, the spiritual community that we have. They will mourn the loss of fellowship with God outside the church and they will repent. And that's the purpose of church discipline. Repentance and restoration of a dear brother or sister ensnared in sin. The last action, very quickly, that Paul directs is to interact with them differently. That's what verses 9, 10, and 11 are all about. Verse 11 I just read, Now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. I have to tell you that eating back 2,000 years ago is totally different than eating 2,000 years later. Went over to dinner the other night to a friend's house, and we had a nice dinner. But 2,000 years ago, if you were invited over to a person's house, it was an intimate bond of friendship and fellowship and acceptance. You were accepting them. That's why Paul says, do not even eat. Don't invite them over to eat. There's a difference now in how you interact with that person. The relationship should change. Jesus, talking about this same issue, church discipline in Matthew 18, said something that's very helpful here. He said, after he told them the process to go through, he said, and expel them if they don't, if they come before the church and they don't repent, 
and treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. It's very helpful. In other words, they go from being a spiritual insider to being treated like a spiritual outsider, to being treated like a non-Christian. How, are we treat, how do we treat non-Christians? How do we treat the world? How should we treat the world? With love? With compassion? Serving them? Treating them in such a way as to make the gospel attractive? What you don't do is cut off all ties with them. And that's not what church discipline is all about either. No, Paul is instructing the church that their deep, intimate, spiritual relationship changes when you excommunicate somebody. And that change in relationship is from an insider to an outsider. And that change in how we relate to them is part of church discipline. Now, we can't can't go in to describe every detail of that, and it's different with every circumstance. But what effect that should have on the person is that they feel that we draw back from them a little. They feel the drawback in relationship with God. That they certainly feel the drawback in not coming to communion. Because this is where the heart of confession and forgiveness lies, right here. And what we're about to do, this, Paul says that you should come to the table and take time to confess. Why? To remember that you're a sinner in need of Christ's redemption, in need of Christ's forgiveness. For those of you who are here who are not members, I would ask you to, to consider what I've, I've said today regarding the gospel. 